When I was a moody teenager, I often escaped the troubles and stresses of high school by reading poetry. I especially liked William Wordsworth, and one of my favorites of his poems was one called Lines Composed a Few Miles Above Tintern Abbey. It's a gorgeous poem about place, memory, and the relationship between nature and self. Here's a few lines to give you a feeling of the words. When these wild ecstasies shall be matured into a sober pleasure, when thy mind shall be a mansion for all lovely forms, thy memory be as a dwelling place for all sweet sounds and harmonies. When you read this poem, you just can't help but be carried to a different place, a different state of being. But why does good poetry take us places? What is it about sentence structure and word order that triggers emotion and transports readers and listeners? In the 11th century, one Persian grammarian demystified the beauty of poetry and revealed what makes great language great. He wrote about it in a text that is virtually unknown in the Western world. So the text that we're going to discuss today is called Dala'il al-Ijaz, and it's by Abdul Qahir al-Jurjani. My name is Alexander Key. I teach uh, comparative literature at Stanford. Uh, I mostly work on Arabic, and I mostly work on older Arabic, like a thousand years ago. The title of this text can be translated as Indications of Inimitability. At its essence, this is a book about how language works. More specifically, it's about syntax, the order of words. In the text, Jirjani explains what exactly makes beautiful language beautiful on a technical level. He's the first person to connect syntax and affect. Uh, he's the first person to connect word order to emotion. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Alexander Key to discuss Giorgiani's Indications of Inimitability. Let's start with learning about the author. Um, tell us um, about what we know about his biography. Yeah, we're not hugely luxuriating in, in information when it comes to his lifetime. Giorgiani is basically how, how he tends to get known uh, because he's from Georgian which is Gorgan, which is just, which is now in modern day Iran. And it's like the Southern uh, shore of the Caspian Sea. When he was living there, so this is in the 11th century, he dies in 1078. When he was living there, it was, you know, a rich, prosperous, reasonably central part of a, a large Islamic empire split into different political units, but part of one big sort of civilizational whole was well-established. And when he was working, everybody like him, so sort of intellectuals, academics, scholars, everybody wrote in Arabic. So he spoke Persian at home, wrote in Arabic. Giorgiani was a successful and well-regarded scholar. He specialized in grammar. And in his time, grammar was a huge deal. For people of my generation, like growing up in England and teaching in 18 to 21 year olds in America today, grammar is not a big deal. Like, we don't know it. We don't study it. It's not, a, it's not a big, prestigious part of our intellectual worldview. But for Georgiani, 
It was. In Giorgiani's time, grammar was a highly sophisticated discipline. Grammarians used a descriptive approach. They aimed to find the common and sometimes unconscious rules that language tends to follow. They looked at what they considered the most beautiful language, poetry. At the time, poetry was much more culturally relevant than it is today. Yeah, it was like, as often I say to, the, to my students, undergraduates, it was like TV. You know, there's, there's good and bad TV, right? I mean, at the moment, there's like high class, like serious TV, and there's trash TV. It was the same for poetry. Like if you're a Chichani, yeah, there was trashy poetry that you would joke about and not get really get into in the same way as, I don't know, like reality TV. You know, you just watch it for fun. And then there was serious poetry. And then there was old classic poetry in the way you go, you know, everyone's always like, all the Orson Welles films are like the best. So really like TV and movies, if you think of how central that is to our culture, both our intellectual culture and our popular culture, poetry was like that. Right. That's the role that poetry played. What is the book that he wrote? Um, what is it saying? So... The first and one of the most fun things about the book is that he's writing in a world of books where paper has been readily, cheaply available in high qualities since the technology was imported from China yeah, in, in the 800s. So paper is an established technology. And people have kind of a choice of how structured you make your book. Like, do you have it in chapters? And there's a well-established tradition of people saying, yeah, it's going to have chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, and then those are going to divide up into sub-chapters. And Giorgiani just says, hey, I'm going to write this book. And he says it near the beginning. I'm not putting a table of contents in. You've got to read the whole thing. You've got to read the whole thing, all kind of three, 400 pages of it, start to finish. And then you'll get it, hopefully. So it has this sort of self-conscious structure. It knows it's going to take up a lot of your time. It knows you're going to have to keep working through the ideas over and over again, and it's, it's okay with that. Giorgiani explains the technical aspects of good poetry in an almost scientific way. He breaks down something that's seemingly organic into a series of rules and structural tendencies. The same way physicists develop theories about the laws of nature, Giorgiani sought to develop similar statements about language. But he didn't just want to scientifically analyze language. He wanted to create theories of language that were themselves beautiful. There's this um, kind of scientific discussion about uh, theoretical minimalism that exists in, in the sciences today. It's, some, it's the way that sometimes programmers talk about code, where they say, you know, some code works, some code doesn't. Some code is nice and beautiful. And some code isn't like there's a, if it's concise and elegant, it's better computer per code. And, and, and you hear people in physics saying the same thing. Like does this equation, like, is this an elegant, concise equation to explain an incredibly complex, like physical reality or not? And Georgiani has ex makes exactly the same point, not about physics, or about um, computer code, but he makes it about grammar. You know, this, this science, this linguistic science. He's like, look, can you make scientific statements about 
human language that are themselves elegant and concise whilst still being rational and accurate. And he says that if you can, then that's going to be kind of the most successful science. At one point in the text, Giorgiani asks the reader to do a kind of self-experiment. He asks them to read a beautiful line of poetry and notice how they feel before and after reading. And you're in a particular state, a particular condition, before you read the line of poetry. Then you read it, and then you're in a different state afterwards. Like, that's the impact that that poetry has on you. And really, the argument he makes is that what's happening here is that syntax, so the order of the words in a sentence, is messing with your mind and readjusting the connections that your mind is making. So, like, the, the sentence goes along, word, 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 the dog is in the house, and as that goes along, your brain is doing all these calculations. You hear, you hear the word the, and you're like, oh, it's a specific thing. You hear the word dog, and you're like, oh, it's a specific dog. And then you have like some, some expectations for what's going to happen next. So for a nice, simple sentence, like the hat is on the wall, not much happens. But to see what happens with a more involved sentence, Giorgiani presents the following metaphor. The rains of the morning are in the hand of the north wind. It takes you so long to think what on earth that metaphor is talking about. Like, the north wind doesn't have hands. And so what happens in that line is your brain does so much work to unpack the metaphor. Or even if it's just, you know, my love is like a red, red rose. You have to work it out. And for Giorgiani, it's that working it out that makes language beautiful. Giorgiani believes the beauty of language lies in the balance of complexity and clarity. Language would be too boring if all you had were simple sentences that create simple images in the minds of readers. But at the same time, he doesn't want the metaphors to be so complicated that they stall the reader. For Giorgiani, beauty means getting the right combination of the two, the balance of complexity and clarity. The language that does that best is the best language, like whether it's the Quran or whether it's a poet, a poet talking about like wine and beautiful women. Giorgiani lived in an intellectual culture that appreciated finding truth through rationalism and reason. He applied these techniques in his examination of language. Giorgiani wasn't one for quick, easy answers. He wrestled to find the truth behind what makes some language beautiful. So you said the text is about language and it's about what makes language good. Um, but tell us a little more, what is the book actually like? When you read the whole book, you, you get the sense that he's like, on the one hand, I know that I want a concise, elegant theory. On the other hand, I know that people have had concise, elegant theories that are just kind of simple slogans. Form and content have to be in balance. And that is just a complete simplification. But he wants to get to theoretical minimalism without falling into sort of oversimplification. But what makes it fun to read is, of course, he's not re-describing 
like gravity over and over again, uh, or or forces, or um, anything else. Poe is redescribing poetry, so he keeps quoting it, and that's and that's again that's what makes it fun to read. Is it's both a literary critical monograph where he's trying to do science, and it's a anthology of the absolute best poetry that a great connoisseur of poetry knew and loved. So what arguments does he end up coming to? What are what are the simplest theories that he's able to to feel comfortable advocating about how language works? I think I think in this book in particular the the answer is that you feel the way you do because the words were chosen and put in a particular order. Like that's what poetry does. Does he think that the power of those poetic choices is universal or is it cultural or is it revealed you know is it is like is there a connection to the divine he says very very clearly that this is a universal theory of language he's like a metaphor is a metaphor whether it's in persian or whether it's in arabic that's not specific to arabic at all the thing that he does think is specific to arabic is the quran he's like hey you know the Quran is a miracle because it's miraculously good Arabic that nobody can imitate. And there's this strong kind of theological discussion of where but all the different religions have different miracles. There's a, so there's an Islamic discourse in which each monotheistic kind of religion in this area of the world gets the miracle it deserves, as it were, or the miracle that would, you know, that, that's going to persuade it. So the Jews are particularly interested in magic, so they get the burning bush, you know, they get the parting of the waves. The Christians are particularly interested in medicine, so they get the, you know, the, the healing of the sick, the raising of the dead. The Arabs in, the, in, the, in Saudi Arabia, what's now Saudi Arabia, are particularly interested in language, so they get the miracle of the Quran, which is... Yeah, inconceivably beautiful and can't be replicated. So let's move now to the impact of this work. Um, what what did it? What was the reception like at the time? And what influences have you tracked um, longer term? I don't think it's a, an over exaggeration to say this is these are the, this is one of the most one of the two most important books of literary criticism in Arabic. And the other one was also written by Georgiani at the same time. It's a book about metaphor. And what I would say is that at the time, these books don't change Georgiani's life. Like he is famous in his century and in the centuries thereafter as a grammarian, as someone who wrote these great, highly technical, highly technical, like, highly technical works of grammar like linguistic science and he wrote sort of short teaching manuals of, of grammar that were very great that were great for sort of introductory students and that's what made his name the fun thing is that he is he writes these books just before the birth of this or just at the birth of the islamic university the islamic university needs textbooks so Jojani's grammar textbook gets his introductory grammar textbook is super super popular 
What happens to his linguistic theories written in these big kind of iterative, if you didn't like them, you'd say rambling. Like if you liked them, you'd say iterative, like these big long monographs, is that his peers and the people who come after him recognize the scale of the sort of theoretical achievement and they write their own books of literary analysis that are better structured for a university curriculum. Giorgiani's books became the foundation for Islamic literary criticism, and he became the person that all future literary critics referred back to. In just the same way as, you know, Newton appears in a present-day physics textbook, or Einstein appears in, you know, a children's TV show. So it's that kind of... But the science itself has, has kept developing and exponentially. Giorgiani became hugely influential as his books spread throughout universities in the Arabic-speaking world. Then there's this fascinating moment when print uh, becomes a really big deal. When you have all these manuscripts and you have these scholars in Egypt and elsewhere saying, we need to edit and publish in print the great works of our heritage, and then which ones do we pick? So they were very conscious that the model that Europe had grown up with was a model in which great theory comes in a book with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it has one name on the cover. Can, Hume, Plato. So if you're in Egypt in the sort of 19th, 20th century, you want to you know, you're working in a world where Europe is where all the money and the power is, you want to you fit that model. The Egyptian scholars didn't want to pick books that were commentaries on commentaries whose origin had to be traced back. They were looking for a book that looked like a European book with one author. And Georgiani is perfect for this. Like he's a single author monographs that are not written as commentaries. They're written in a sort of individual expounding way that makes a lot of sense for the 19th, 20th century Egyptian context. So Rashid Rida, Mohammed Sheker, a number of influential uh, publishers and intellectuals, quote-unquote, rediscover Giorgiani and edit and find the manuscripts of his work scattered about. They find them, they edit them, they publish them, there are several editions, and they're their, act their 18th, 19th century actions are fundamental to the reason why I would pick Georgiani to answer your question of what's a, a great and highly influential book. Thanks to these 19th century Egyptian scholars, Georgiani remains influential today. So people who are writing literary criticism in Arabic today, they read, they read Saussure, they read yeah, the classics of literary criticism in the West, they read Ricoeur, and they read Georgiani. And, they, and these two things fit together, and this produces a, an Arabic literary critical discourse. Really, the only problem is in English and other European languages where Georgiani has not been translated and is not really available. So there's, a, there's an abbreviated translation in French that I don't think many people use. And then there's a, there's a translation of the other metaphor book into German. And that's it. I suspect that... There is something special about 
the place of the Quran in literature and in literary analysis. What what is helpful to understand about the place of language and the Quran for Muslims that's different than like those of us in the West kind of even can intimate? When when you you grow up in the north of England and you get taught the Bible at your at your elementary school, you know you're reading English and you know the Bible was in some other language, and you you may even know that Jesus spoke some other language. Whereas if you're if you grow up in America as a Muslim and you go to match and you go to Sunday school and you learn the Quran, you know that it's God's actual words. Yeah, you grow up, you know, same for Georgiani, you grow up speaking Persian in Gorgan in the 11th century. These are God's actual words. It's God's decision to put the A there and the the there. It's God's decision to switch the, the syntax around. God's decision to use this particular image. Georgiani's work is practically unknown in the West, partly because he remains untranslated. Professor Key is trying to change that. He's currently in the process of translating this text into English. It is possible that this text's major influence has yet to be fully realized. There are these big figures who who have this sort of scale of intellectual achievement that institutions haven't spent as much time on. I mean, again, like you think of the amount of work that the institutions that we engage with have put into certain big figures. Like you think of how much Kant scholarship there is. You think about those people who have like 20 editions, this whole like whole wall of books about somebody. There are these figures in the Islamic in the Islamic long millennium that just haven't had that much attention. There's a lot of work still to be done. But even though his influence in the West may be just beginning, there's no question that Jajani had a profound impact on Arabic culture. I'd say that after Abdul Qahir al-Jajani literary criticism in Arabic was fundamentally different, more complex, and more rigorous. It un- literary criticism after Abdul Qahir understood how the words on the page or the words in our ear fit together with the words in our brain in a much more effective and sophisticated way that's still relevant today. And is there a figure in the West who you think is the most apt comparison for maybe the kind of work they did and the kind of influence that they still have? I would say Georgiani is as important for Arabic and Islamic intellectual history as Kant is for European intellectual history. I mean, hey, you can do a whole undergrad degree and become a professor and have read very little of Kant, you know, but but he, you still know how important it is or how important everyone says it is. Yeah, I think Georgiani is at that kind of that kind of stature. But the the big difference is that that long Islamic millennium cared so much more about language than our intellectual moment. The question we then have to ask is, who's right? Like, is language that important for us as human beings? Like, should we be devoting a large chunk of our institutional and academic resources to language? Like, or not? Well, it depends 
what you mean by to language, right? Because, I mean, the humanities, much of it is actually appreciating and thinking about language, but it's not a linguistics department. <laughs> I would add literary studies, English, linguistics, computational linguistics, natural language processing. Like, if you take all those things that talk about language, are we paying language enough attention? Or should, or should we be more like, the context Georgiani was working in, in which language was the fundamental way academics approach the world. I, on one hand, I'm like, language is the only tool we've got for communicating with each other, so maybe it is kind of important. Maybe it is fundamental. Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss. And our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what others are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.